Good morning. Let me know if you can't hear me. I have a bit of a cold, so my voice is a little low. So just put your hand up if it's not loud enough. Fair enough. How's that? No. Okay. It's like a fly. There we go. All right. It's nice to be here. The last time I was here, I was uh, Ruth Dennison was speaking. It was a year or two ago. Delightful, delightful woman. A card, as they say. <laughs> I was thinking on the drive down uh, about what I would speak about this morning, and I was reminded of a pithy old spiritual adage. It goes, the spiritual path is less about perfection and more about wholeness. And in my own experience, in my own life, and in teaching, um, particularly in the last couple of months, have found more and more that that wholeness, more often than not, comes from brokenness. So I'd like to speak this morning about wholeness and brokenness in our own lives and in the world. One of the misperceptions we often get caught in is some sense that the spiritual path to enlightenment, to God, to spirituality, to the divine uh, is something other. When we get there, it will be on on yonder shore, a land we we don't know, something unfamiliar. And one of the reasons I really like the word wholeness is because it's nothing other than what's here right now. What's changed is our awareness of it, is a sense of unity within it. But it's nothing that isn't already here. Thus the age-old aha It's more like, oh yeah, here I've been. But we didn't see it before. And I'm reminded of uh, some time ago going to a funeral of a loved one, and I was driving in the funeral procession. It was a weekday morning, and as we were driving through town, uh, life outside the car was going on uh, as usual. People were going to work and going about their business And yet it seemed anything but normal. And looking through the window, I I couldn't possibly see normality in the people that were out there. And there was something viscerally uh, poignant, sad, real, about things that the day before I wouldn't have really noticed. And even the the space, even the air between the car and the people um, seemed somehow thicker, seemed more alive. And it felt like, and I think we've all experienced this in times of of great sorrow and tragedy, in death, uh, or in birth and in great celebration, that there's a wholeness that comes forth.
And it's something I, I felt uh, quite a lot for the month or five weeks that I was working on the rubble at the World Trade Center. I spent the first um, three days running a crisis center a little bit away from Ground Zero where families came uh, looking for loved ones. It was at a recreation center where they had an ice rink, so it was immediately picked out by FEMA as a potential morgue. And as soon as families heard about that, they started um, pouring in, mostly families that had already been to all the different hospitals, and this was their last stop after six or seven hospitals uh, visiting and, and checking. So when they came to us, they were pretty desperate and pretty tired. And we would collect uh, a collection of us, of, of crisis counselors and chaplains. We would collect their information of missing persons and f- type it into a, a database um, and give them information, which was very little. Uh, and mostly what we could offer was just being there with them and holding some space of support. Uh, I would ask them to take out a photo if they had one and we would scan it uh, into the database, but more so I would just sit there with them and ask them questions, and we would talk about uh, the person and cry and laugh and tell stories um, and often encourage them to go home, that there was little we could do at this point but be together with, with other loved ones. And then for the next uh, number of weeks, I was right down at, at Ground Zero, coordinating a number of the supply stations that offered clothing and food and equipment uh, and medical supplies for the rescue workers and also offering chaplaincy and crisis counseling. Um, And it was a place that was amazingly holy and amazingly alive, Uh, the way that hospitals are holy, the ways that prisons are holy, the ways that car accidents are holy. All the people running around on, on top uh, of the rubble, all doing their own business, um, reminded me a bit of, uh, most of you probably remember the Oakland and Point Reyes fires. Uh, Oakland was maybe, what, 10 years ago now, and Point Reyes was six years ago, almost to the day of September 11th. And on the Jewish calendar, they were the same day. Um, and I used to live in West Marin when I was teaching at Spirit Rock, and I would go out to Point Reyes a lot. It was kind of my second home where I would hike. And I went out there a couple of months after the fire in early December, after the rains had come, and there were all these charred and broken trees, and everything looked uh, quite morbid and deathly and very dark. And yet with the rain, the, the grass had just started to come up. And as you know, after fire, grass comes back with kind of a, a new vibrance, and it was, it was velvety and emerald. It was very rich and very alive. In fact, on blueberry plantations, they often burn down the, the, the low bush blueberries at the end of the season so they'll grow back uh, with new rejuvenation in the coming year. And there was a way in which, down at Ground Zero, there was really a sense of all these little people that I would see running around. People would ask me when I'd get interviewed for the radio or something, they'd say, how many people are down there? And I'd say, well, what's the death count today? And they'd say, well, 5,654. I'd say, yeah, I think that just seems to be about the number of people down there working. And it really felt like there were these little blades of grass that were growing out of the rubble um, and this real kind of fresh vibrancy. And people were so much more alive and so much kinder. I'm sure you felt it here, too, in the days and weeks afterwards about how much more um, human people became. And there was this almost this cracking open from this brokenness. 
I was down there mostly doing 24 to 48 hour shifts and then I would go home for 12 to 24 hours and sleep and write and then go back. And on day three I was returning um, after just being home for about 12 hours and I took the subway. And riding the subway, people just seemed so um, so raw, uh, but also so connected. In New York, people do not look at each other on the subway. And here people were looking into each other's eyes, people were holding hands, crying. I had my Native American flute, which I was bringing down to Ground Zero to play, and I played it on the subway and then all through Times Square. And People hummed along and uh, kind of swayed, and it was odd how it didn't even feel abnormal to be playing the flute in Times Square. And it reminded me of, of when you're standing on a street corner, if you're, say, waiting for a bus or something, and somebody else is standing on another street corner, you're very unlikely to talk to them just standing there. But if you happen to be ducking under a, an overledge um, or in the front of a building to get out from the rain, and other people are under that same ledge, and you're all kind of huddled away from the rain, you're a lot more likely to speak. Because there's this commonality of experience, and there's also this commonality of suffering. You're all sort of stuck there together. Or when there's a flood or an earthquake or a national tragedy, there's a way in which we feel more neighborly. There's a way in which we feel more connected. And of course, nothing's actually changed. The woman sitting across from me on the subway a month later is just as similar, just as connected or such as disconnected as she was on September 12th. But there's a way in which we can open to that perception. There's a way in which we can allow that uh, to be seen, just as when I was driving in the car in the funeral procession. A friend of mine who works um, in Manhattan, and she takes the 7th Avenue train up to 79th Street every morning, and she told me that in the two, in, after uh, September 11th, she'd get on the subway, and when she'd get off at 79th Street, she saw the most shocking thing and that the doors would open and there would be this space. People weren't just rushing on. They were actually allowing the people to get off. It's unheard of in New York. It's it's our version of a random act of kindness. It lasted about two weeks and then the gap kind of closed. And I think that's that's quite common um, and something that we often struggle with, that closing. And when we do find that openness, um, there can be a, a sense of, of grasping for it or keeping it. Um, how can we stay there? And I, I don't think it's actually possible to stay there. Um, and that that isn't what the path is about. And I speak about the path and I speak about tragedy almost interchangeably. not only because there are a lot of parallels between great tragedy and spiritual awakening, but almost invariably they're very uh, closely intertwined and that the path to one and the path to the other really involve each other. Um, And whether you see it as a dissension or an ascension, um, there really is less difference than we might think. Uh, And that's where the brokenness and wholeness come in. But it's not a brokenness that we can stay in. And when you think of the great spiritual myths, Moses climbed the mountain and spent 40 days and then came back down. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days and then comes back out. Buddha sits under the tree for 
some disputable amount of time and <laughs> then leaves. Um, there is no such thing as spiritual retirement. There is no spiritual pension plan. Um, it's something that's, that perpetually we need to return to, but it's also something we need to take back out with us. And what I mean by that is even when, even when the openness closes back up, um, that's okay. That's natural. That's what happens. And the question is, do we remember? You know, the great adage of, of the Holocaust will never forget. And people are saying the same thing about September 11th. It's not so much we'll forget what happened. That, that doesn't seem possible. The question is, will we remember the meaning? Will we remember how it transformed us? Will we remember the kindness that, that we felt and the openness? Those aha moments. That's what we so easily forget. And that's what the textbooks never hold. But our hearts do. And it's an openness that often comes in little short moments. Working down at Ground Zero with um, with the firemen, it's mostly men. Firefighters were one of the largest groups that I worked with. There were so many of them down there. They lost so many, and so many of them were just standing around. And it was a very different kind of chaplaincy or crisis counseling than in other situations. In one part, because there wasn't any helper group and to-be-helped group. Everyone was affected by it around the country, but particularly in New York. But also um, policemen, firemen, army. There were a lot of military there that I worked with, and construction workers. Probably four of the lowest on the list of people that seek out uh, counseling or chaplaincy, um, particularly when they're together as a group and on the job. Um, meditators are pretty high up on that list, uh, particularly Californians. Um, And it wasn't necessarily so appropriate for them to kind of lay their hearts out there and fall apart. They, they were working, and they needed to hold it together. Some of them didn't. Some of them really did fall apart. And I worked with people who were writhing on the ground and screaming from the experiences that they'd had of um, reaching in and finding a hand and pulling it out, and it's only a hand. Um, what I found was in working with the, with the firemen and the construction workers on the crew, um, was what I called uh, shoot-the-shit chaplaincy, uh, where I, I learned to smoke and I drank a lot of coffee, and I would stand around with them on the pile, or later on we actually had chairs. We would, we would sit down, but in the beginning it was just putting blankets around them and handing them coffee and bringing food. Uh, but sitting around with them, and we would just sort of talk uh, in very sort of visceral, manly uh, ways. We weren't talking about sports, but uh, there was a... There's a certain superficiality to, uh, to the conversation, for sure. Um, but there was a way in which, in moments, we could open up to it. And it was almost like, uh, it's not like a video camera, it's like the shutter of a, of a still camera that could just open up for a moment and let it in, and then it needed to close again. And there was this very uh, memorable experience that happened more than once, and sometimes it would happen with the same group again and again, where I would be sitting with a group of four or five men who were on the same fire crew. They were from the same ladder. Uh, they'd been working together for, say, 10, 15 years. 
And we would be sitting together and they were very comfortable with each other, talking in a certain way, and talking about what was going on and the construction and this and that. And, and we'd all sort of be... <sighs> and then I would say something to try to kind of change it slightly. One of the one of the things I would often say is, you know, I worked with the families for the first uh, number of days and it was really hard for them because they didn't know what was going on down here and they wanted to come down and they wanted answers and they wanted to get a first-hand experience and how hard it was for them not to know. And now for you guys, you're down here and you know and how hard it is to know uh, because these guys would just talk about having to see things and experience things that nobody should should have to know. And they would get that and they would nod and something would sort of shift because it was being acknowledged that their knowing was okay and their pain was okay and the family's not knowing was okay and their pain was okay. And on numerous occasions, this suddenly, there would be sort of what I would call a shift into the angel realm and all the guys would suddenly sort of pop up and they'd start talking in this very soft voice and they'd talk about their grandmothers and their children and the loved ones who they lost and the, that they're hoping will still find uh, and other people who have died and how they saw God when they first saw the buildings come down and it would last for about two minutes maybe three minutes and then boom we'd all kind of <laughs> get in our bodies again and for another ten minutes we'd sort of sit there and grunt and talk and <laughs> nod and, and then maybe ten minutes later we would pop back up for another two minutes um, and as I would leave I remember the first time as I left a group like that what really struck me was the most important part was that they were creating a dialogue with each other where they could talk about this. That after 10 or 15 years of working together, my sense was they had never um, opened up in this way. And now there was some sense of possibility that uh, this type of conversation and this type of connection uh, was possible since particularly for this group, they really needed mutual support. It's almost like after being in a, in a marriage for 10 or 15 years, finding something new that you had never been able to to talk about before, um, and that at any stage in any relationship, we can make that little make that little nuance, and we can um, we can shift into it, and then we come back out and we lose it. I was sitting a long retreat at IMS uh, about a year ago. Um, actually, this retreat was about a year and a half ago. I was there for three months sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Um, and a lot shifted for me on that retreat. And I, I found some places in practice that I'd never been to before. And at the end of the retreat, I was sitting with my teacher, and I said, I was in a place of real just sort of openness and stillness, and um, the world had, had dropped away in many ways. And I said to her, it's going to go away, isn't it? I'm going to lose it. And she said, she said, it'll shrink down to the size of a mustard seed, but you'll never lose that mustard seed. You can cover it up with piles of dirt and pounds and pounds of shit, but it'll always be there to be dug out, and you can always water it, and it will grow again. And I've used that as a uh, almost a mantra to return to again and again, particularly when I feel those pounds and pounds of shit that feel so familiar you know, piling down on us and we wonder what happened to that, you know, to that moment, what happened to that, you know, our 20s, what happened to our childhood, what happened to that sense of awakening that we had on that retreat or that Sunday morning. And I sometimes even, I don't, I don't use malas, but I, I sometimes just do this to just remember that there's a, that there's a mustard seed 
and almost you can rub it and you can bring it back. And this is the remembering. This is the this is the important practice uh, in the face of suffering. And this is what I found so valuable about the practice and why I was so grateful for it when I was down there. Because it isn't it isn't an inherent cause and effect that suffering leads to great insight, that it leads to awakening, that it leads to great kindness. It's a possibility. But in the face of death, life can become either deeply beautiful or deeply futile. And all the people who were doing so many things of kindness around the country, around the world, throughout New York, um, sending prayers, sending gifts, sending good thoughts, um, doing great acts of generosity, uh, helping down there around the clock. People were so motivated by feelings of brokenness, by feelings of disempowerment, by feelings of um, anger, frustration. And it motivated so much goodness. And yet I couldn't help thinking again and again that those that flew the planes were also feeling angry and disempowered and helpless and frustrated individually, culturally, religiously, economically, ethnically. And that those same seeds of fear and those same seeds of greed and those same seeds of confusion can really grow into either possibility. And that we can't somehow draw this line between evil people and the rest of us. It would cut not through our families, but through ourselves. And that the practice is about returning to those those original emotions, those original places of, of trembling and cultivating the possibility of growing the flowers out of that compost of, of fear, of anger. One of the places that I've been most struck by this dichotomy and this possibility has been with my work in prisons. For the last uh, two years, I've been working in juvenile detention facilities in New York and in Rikers Island with incarcerated youth, uh, boys and girls from 17 down to even as young as 11 who are incarcerated for anything from rape and murder on one end to being of the wrong race on the wrong street corner on the other end. Um, In New York, in the juvenile justice system, 98.5% of the incarcerated youth are black or Latino. Uh, And 70% of them come from the same four neighborhoods where pretty much all the arrests happen. Um, And we go in and do meditation and yoga and spiritual practice and storytelling. Um, for the boys, it's, I frame it as a warrior training, an initiation. Um, for the girls, uh, we do a lot around forgiveness. We do a lot around uh, loving kindness. Um, and here in California, over the last year, through a very innovative, large uh, healthcare organization, a nonprofit working in the prisons, one of the leaders nationally in doing HIV and hepatitis uh, prevention peer counseling and uh, prevalence studies called Center Force. We've started in conjunction with the work they're doing around physical health in prisons. In California prisons, 40% of the women have hep C. Uh, Something like 18% have HIV. Um, We've now added this spiritual and psychological program so that with the physical health comes spiritual health and we do meditation and storytelling and spiritual practice. And the work has started uh, myself and uh, another Vipassana and Aikido teacher, Wendy Palmer, Some of you may know who started the dojo in um, Mill Valley with George Leonard and Richard Heckler. 
we teach together and we work we've started primarily working with um, 50 women who are peer educators in Chowchilla Women's Prison in Fresno there are 4,000 women in this prison and there's another prison right across the street with another 3,500 women and for this prison these 50 women the majority of whom have either HIV and or hepatitis um, they, they have been trained by Center Force and when 200 new inmates come every week they do a healthcare training for them on prevention um, around sex, around IV drugs, around um, uh, piercings, uh, around tattooing, and around fighting, which is one that people don't think about. Uh, but the prevalence of all of those is enormous, and the possibility of HIV and hepatitis is enormous. So they do these trainings for the new women, and then they do one-on-one counseling for women who are in the hospital and dying in the prison. They do hospice work for women who are sick, for women who test positive, for women who find that the other one of the other seven women who they're in a little room, eight, eight to a room, when they find out that another one is HIV positive and they're very worried and they don't know about um, how it's transmitted and how it isn't, these 50 women are the counselors and they have passes. They can go anywhere in the prison um, while they're inmates on 24 hours on call. So we do two- and three-day meditation retreats with these women, and then they it both works with their own issues and their own lives, but then they spread it out and bring it to the counseling that they're doing. We also work with um, women who are about to be released, pre-release. And uh, California women statistically get significantly higher rates of incarceration for the same crime as men, um, largely because the majority of women are incarcerated for types of conspiracy where the men in their lives were involved in some crime, and they were caught up in it. Um, but when he gets caught, he often turns state's evidence around to everyone else around him. He gets off with much less, and the women are often in for much longer sentences than their husbands. Um, and then a very large percentage of the women we work with who are in for life are there for murdering abusive uh, spouses. Um, so we do pre-release work. When the women get out, they have enough money. They're given enough money by the county for two nights in a cheap motel. And uh, the majority of the parole money goes to the two or three uh, serious male sexual offenders in the county who they want to make sure don't uh, repeat. So the the majority of parole money for a given county goes to those two or three men. Um, so for the women to get it, most of these women, besides having severe physical and sexual abuse in their history, 70, 80, 90 percent of these women have, have sexual abuse in their history. Um, most of them have drug and alcohol issues as well. So they're clean for the first time in their lives when they're in prison, and they're very afraid of getting out. And to get into a halfway house in Orange County when they leave for the women, uh, a lot of the women go back to Orange County, they either have to get pregnant before they leave the prison, or they have to shoot up once. And once they start using again, then they can go to a halfway house. Um, so the, as, you can, as you can get a sense of the fear and anxiety um, and the real uh, concrete issues that they're facing are enormous. So we go into their pre-release class in the last couple months and hopefully give them um, some uh, some coping mechanisms. Um, excuse me. We had one woman who had uh, severe anxiety disorder and panic attacks, and uh, she left in the middle of our class. And she came back at the end and told me that's why she left because she gets panic attacks. She said it was the first panic attack she'd had in 10 years where she didn't have to take her medicine uh, because we were in the middle of doing this meditation. She said she just kept going with it. Um, and some of these women, particularly the peer educators, uh, just great bodhisattvas. When I go in, I remind them, you know, you are doing better things with your life than 98% of the people I meet out in the world. Mm-hmm. 24 hours a day doing this counseling work. 
And most of these women will say they were terrible, terrible people before they got in there. And if they hadn't been in prison, you know, their lives would not be the way that they are today. Just as Nelson Mandela talks about, he would not have been the leader that he was if he hadn't been in prison. Um, and yet we also see women on the other side who are become really hardened and really violent, and men and boys. Um, so that possibility of the brokenness um, turning into um, great kindness, and the possibility of that brokenness turning into shards that we sharpen into box cutters and knives, um, is really a, an open question. Okay, by me. Um, and I think it's a question we face moment to moment. It's not something we somehow make this decision and say, all right, I'm going to you know, dedicate my life to goodness. That's a great aspiration, and what, it lasts about three seconds until the next annoying phone call comes along? And, um, it really is a moment to moment of, okay, what's going on right now? Am I coming from anger or am I coming from kindness? We're starting, uh, we're coming back in January and February. We're going to be going to the women's prison that we've been going to, and I've met with these same women time and time again for a week at a time. So I'm really building up a relationship with them. Uh, it's really nice. I made a bit of a faux pas the last time I was there. There was a young woman who was, she had said the time before she was going to be on parole, and uh, and I didn't think I was going to see her. So when I saw her, I went over to her, and you, you, you can't hug, but I just went over to her and I smiled. I said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> And I felt terrible. And we, we spent the whole week together, but I didn't say anything. And on the last day, right before I left, I went up to her. I said, Stephanie, I really want to apologize for what I said. I felt terrible about it the whole week. I was just so grateful to be able to see you because I thought I was going to miss you. And she, she was so sweet about it. She said, you know, I've said that to people here myself. And uh, I, know, I know what you meant. Um, so when we come back, we'll go to these two women's prisons. We'll go to a youth prison in Stockton. And we're going to a transgender men's unit in Vacaville, um, which will be an interesting. We'll work with their peer educators as well. Um, and I have to say, I found a depth in, in their practice that I have not seen in sanghas out in the world. Um, and with the youth in New York as well, there's a real sincerity. The young kids, it's not so much so. The 12, 13, 14-year-olds are like any junior high kid. They're still very cocky and particularly the boys. They're like, ah, I got busted once, but let me out and I'll, you know, I'll do my stuff again. They'll never touch me. And once they get to be about 18, they've seen so many of their friends die and so many of their friends get locked up um, that they really kind of go into a hole until they're about 30. And if they're still locked up when they're 30, often that's when there's kind of a renaissance and they really look for, for something meaningful. But between about 18 and 30, it's really hard to get them. But around 15, 16, 17, they're in a place where they've seen enough suffering that they can't deny it. They're starting to get backed into the corner, and it's really what it takes. And we see that in our own lives. It really takes feeling like we're in a corner before we're willing to, to do the work. Familiar suffering is so much preferable to the unknown. So much. You know, this shame, this, this guilt... You know, this kind of low-grade nagging fever is much better than kind of just leaping over that little log. Who knows what I'll step on on the other side, right? But when they get backed into a corner, they really are willing to do it. 
and quite often um, when I sit with a new group of, of guys or young girls um, and we'll do a meditation to start. Um, and in fact, the can I borrow the bell? The little one actually. People often ask, how do you get them to meditate? And uh, the first thing is you, you, you don't try to sell them anything. They have an agenda sensor that uh, they, can, they can smell it like flies to shit. Um, they really can, I, I apologize all the profanity, but working in prisons, you, you can't give a Dharma talk without swearing in prison. Um, uh, so you really have to not have any agenda for them and care more about them than about changing them or helping them or fixing them or feeling like you know anything. And we all so much want to be acknowledged and loved and recognized. And these kids and these women, more so than anyone I've ever met, particularly these young guys, they have been so abused and neglected and shot at and the girls raped and told that they were wrong and told that everything they stand for is wrong and how they've responded to the world is wrong and thrown out of their homes and told by the staff that they're worthless. And just for somebody to sit with them and listen and smile at their jokes is so transformative. And so much is possible once that human connection is there and once they feel recognized, it's amazing. But if you don't recognize them, you get nowhere. It's like pushing a, a rock up a, uh, up a mountain compared to just being there with them. And they, they just love it. They just love to be seen. And then uh, they also love to be challenged. And their fear of failure is so great that if you give them anything to do and if they kind of get off a little bit, they'll immediately stop. If you give them a yoga posture, and even if it's something very simple but they feel a little awkward, then they'll just sit down and they won't do anything more. But if you tell them, this is really hard, you probably aren't going to be able to do this. They'll all go for it. (laughs) So I start by saying, I'm going to do something very simple, but I guarantee half of you are going to get it wrong. All I'm going to do is ring this bell some number of times, and all you got to do is count it. But you can't look, and you can't move your lips, and you can't move your fingers. Just count. All right, give it a try. And warriors don't peek, so shut your eyes. Go ahead.
hold that number in your mind, keeping your eyes shut. Finding a place where you feel the breathing. And just gently count the same number of breaths as you counted bells. It could be feeling the rising and falling of the belly. It could be the chest expanding and contracting. You could feel it at the tip of the nose as the air comes in and out. Or some people find it easier to fall with the whole way from the nose all the way down into the belly and then back out again. It doesn't really matter, but just breathe however you feel like breathing now normally. And count to yourself, in and out, that's one. In and out, that's two. If you lose count, which you probably will at some point, just start back at one again. Take your time and get up to the number that you counted of the bells. You can begin. done at your own pace, you can open your eyes. It's a funny thing about the spiritual path that you can be wandering on it, off it, on some uh, dead end trail for years or even lifetimes, and it only takes a moment or two to get back. You don't have to retrace all your steps. And particularly with some of these boys, 15, 16, 17 years old, after the first sitting, we might do that or we might do just 10 minutes of silence. One or two of them will open their eyes and they just look like they've They've seen something they've never seen before. And I remember one boy leaning over to me after the meditation and he said, I've been locked up four times. If I get locked up again, they send me upstate and I know I'll never get out. I want to do it differently, but I don't know how. You seem to have something, mister. Tell me how I can do it differently. And of course, that's really just the very first step. But it's such an important step to, to admit we're lost and to start looking in healthy places. And in some ways, I think I find it harder now after so many years of meditating to admit that I'm lost and how important it still is to allow myself to be broken to be okay with the camera shutter opening and closing. What are your thoughts about this? People have any questions or comments? Please. Did I see you walking outside before? Yeah. Before the, yeah. We came, we came in about the same time. I was very impressed with your walking. I, I, it's nice to know you just came off retreat because you still have that, uh, that retreat uh, glow. Yeah. 
do you deal with the with your feelings about the uh, services that are available or not available for them after you give them some wonderful mm. foundation mm. In, in, in the system and, and see what they have to know what they have to face when they leave in the prisons. It's a good question. Um, I think one of the things that it brings up for me is there are different, um, particularly with something like the prison system that most of us probably feel like is it's a fairly dysfunctional system. Um, I feel like there are two very important roles. Uh, one is on the inside and one is on the outside. And the one on the outside is about changing the system or standing up against the system or making suggestions for bringing about a better system. Um, and I think that's very important, whether it's through political action or uh, other types of work. It's also very important to work from the inside and actually offer services to those that are in there um, and that are struggling. And that those in most, whether it's prisons or any other cause, um, they really kind of need to be separate groups because when you're working against something, you can also be working inside it um, skillfully. And so much of the work that we've done has been started by building good relationships with, with the system and building good relationships with the, with the guards and actually doing meditation groups for the guards and for the staff. Uh, which is one of the major projects we do out here as well, because things won't change. I mean, so much of the violence in prison starts with the energy that's created by the by the administration and the staff. Um, having said that, I think the other important piece for me is that balance between um, seeing the bigger picture and trying to um, make change on a large scale, including post-release and including continuing things, and also seeing, well, what can I do and what's my part and where where can I make a difference, or where can we make a difference? So in terms of having a larger scope, in New York, um, we've started a post-release program for the kids in, in the neighborhoods so that kids, when they get out, they can keep going to these classes, and also hopefully kids that never go in can, can go to these classes. And we're starting some kind of uh, multi-dimensional spiritual community centers in different neighborhoods in the Bronx and in Brooklyn, where most of the kids are from, where there'll be uh, meditation classes, but also Aikido and, and karate and uh, parenting classes. Many of these kids are parents, computer classes, job training, so kind of a whole range of post-release stuff. Um, here in California, more what we do is uh, when I work with the post when, with the pre-release women, um, we give them information about sitting groups in their areas, and there are a number of prison groups that do pen pal um, things uh, so they can write back and forth. Um, and I think it's something that also grows from within. The hope is is that in these prisons, what starts to happen is there are sitting groups within the prison, and there are now some um, ex-cons who are now teaching, um, which is also, I think, a really important piece, just as it was very important for Asian teachers to kind of... Uh, pave the way but eventually make room for Western teachers to be teaching. Um, I think it's very important and many of us feel like if people that we teach either as teens or as prisoners aren't teaching, you know, let's say in 10 years, then it, it's been a failure, uh, then it, it hasn't worked. Please. It's a good question. He asked whether the difference in background between me and people I work with was a was a difference. I assume you're talking about the Irish firemen. Um, it is, and it is, and it's it's a it's an element. I'll put it that way. I think there are negative elements and there are positive elements. Um, 
as I said, 98.5% of the kids in the New York juvie are not white. We asked, where are all the white kids? One of the kids said, man, they pay their lawyers. Which is a piece of it. It's not the only piece. Um, There are things we have. I, I've hired a couple of uh, African-American women teachers who teach with us. Um, and there, there is something that's been amazing after teaching for you know, months and months in the prison then to go in with one of them and suddenly, you know, whole new conversations come up. And it, it was a real, because I had developed this relationship with the kids and there wasn't a lot of, you know, what I felt like there wasn't a lot of issues. And then I bring somebody else in and I see, you know, suddenly race stuff comes up in a whole different way and they're willing to talk about it in a whole different way. Um, and on the other side, um, for a lot of these kids, they've had personal experience with uh, two white men, um, the one who arrested them and the one who gave them the sentence. So to have an experience with somebody who actually seems to be caring about them um, is a whole other side of racial dynamics. Um, it's something we talk about. It's something that, you know, who am I and how, who do they see in me and who do I see in them? You know, and they talk about walking down the street and people moving to the other side of the street uh, when they see them coming and how that makes them feel and the assumptions that other people have about them. So it brings up issues of assumptions and about how we present ourselves or how people view us. And, you know, we, we do questions of, you know, I'll go around and as an opening. Um, how do you think people see you? Name two or three things. And then go around again and say, what's something true about you that people don't see? Um, I certainly use um, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela uh, as in our teaching quite a, quite a bit as, as people who... Jesus as well, since many of them are devoutly Christian. I tell a lot of Bible stories, um, trying to speak somewhat from a, from a place of, of connection rather than rather than difference, uh, but also acknowledging the difference. Yeah. yeah. I want to say that I really appreciated your description of New York. Mm. That I, I went back in October um, for several days to New York, and I've had trouble explaining to people why... I came back from there feeling better mm-hmm. than, yeah. than feeling worse. Yeah. Yeah. And um, well, I went to the Family Assistance Center and went down to um, Ground Zero. Mm-hmm. And I was so impressed with how um, the space was held. Mm-hmm. You know, walking mm-hmm. into the Family Assistance Center, it just felt like you were putting yourselves in the hands of, mm-hmm. you know, Seth, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or yeah. whatever. You know, I mean, I just, I really felt like the space was held and that the mm-hmm. caring mm-hmm. and compassion for mm-hmm. family members was just mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you know the experience at Ground Zero and seeing it and um, and also feeling that even while we were there that there were people standing around. We had a child with us that was mm-hmm. 13, and there was never a moment that there was not a chaplain that was within mm-hmm. like three feet of this child. Mm-hmm. He was the youngest one in the mm-hmm. whole group, and and I felt really um, I, it just made me really happy. I mean to mm-hmm. see kind of that kind of caring that was mm-hmm. coming out and that, mm-hmm. that they had, you know, their eyes on him and his parents were there and that obviously, mm-hmm. um, you know, his parents could be completely dysfunctional in mm-hmm. a situation like that in terms mm-hmm. of caring for their child. I mean, they were experiencing their own mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just felt like everybody was just being mm-hmm. really cared for very mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was interesting to hear mm-hmm. you talk about how it started. Mm-hmm. 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 So, you know, anyways, and, and I experienced a very similar um, sense of just the life that's coming back to mm-hmm. New York, that they're, on the one hand, that it's a grieving city and that there's a lot of um, dynamics that are occurring. I witnessed, you know, I was standing at the subway and this woman went, oh, my God, you're alive, you know, right in front of me to this other person. And they get into this long mm-hmm. animated conversation. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, this probably happens 
mm. on a regular basis in New mm. York, but it was like, it's not what you normally mm-hmm. see when you're getting on the bus mm-hmm. or on public yeah. transportation, yeah. these type of conversations. Mm-hmm. And so there was a combination of that and also, um, you know, that the fact that, you know, as you walk down the first day, um, when I didn't realize that I could actually go into Ground Zero, we'd walk down to where people are as close as they can get, mm-hmm. the public can get. And mm-hmm. Just walking down there and, and watching the shops open and the, mm-hmm. you know people going about their business, mm-hmm. it was really, mm-hmm. it was incredibly healing for me on a personal level to be there and, and to experience that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. It was nice to hear your Thank description. You. Yeah. I, I was struck by, you started by saying how you came back feeling more alive. And I think there's a way that people, the more contact they had, uh, the easier it was to mourn and to heal. And that friends of mine in New York who weren't right there had a much harder time, and people in California um, had a harder time in some ways. And when I went back into the prison with the kids, I brought some pieces of rubble uh, for them to hold. And it really made a difference for them to have some sense of connection. And people that could feel like they, they could make a difference that were down there in some ways were able to to cathartically process it. And I think in some ways it was harder for, for you all here um, with the frustration and nothing to do and only the media images. Yeah. Is there one more? Okay. Yes, please. I was It's a good question. Um, I appreciate you using the word presence. Um, I wrote a note in one of my notebooks. Uh, in both the Jewish and the Muslim tradition, uh, God is often is at times referred to as the presence, capital T, capital P. And I had never felt um, the presence so much in the connection um, as I did down there and the presence between me and another person and the presence that they brought, the presence that I brought, and could really feel how that manifested a greater presence um, and how much that... Um, that in some ways is the, the practical uh, pathway to the greater um, is by bringing presence between people. Um, in terms of how I dealt with it, I think some of it has to do with role and I found when I was in a certain role, I was able to fill that role. And as soon as the role went away, everything cracked away. Um, going home for the little bits that I would home, I, I wouldn't want to be alone. I'd have somebody sit in my room while I slept for a few hours. Um, I would pace around a lot. Um, and then I could hold it together a lot more, and it almost became addictive to be down there. Um, partly because I wanted to help, partly because, you know, our ego comes into it and there's a whole mix of motivations of why we're there, some sincere and some not so sincere. Um, and also because it, it held at bay uh, my own stuff. Um, on day five or six, I was it was dawn and I stepped out of the chapel. We were running a supply center out of a chapel a little smaller than this room. It was just packed, filled with respirators and boots and medical equipment and clothes and hot food and cold food. And I stepped out just after dawn um, Right by the, it was right on the pier, and uh, a, fi- a female fireman was was wailing and weeping, and she was being supported by five or six other firemen. And somebody came over to me and said, "They just found her husband's body. He was a fireman as well." And the rawness of her emotional uh, display just cracked me. And I hadn't slept for about two and a half days at that point, and I just crumpled and and wept for a while. And it was exactly what I needed. Um, 
and I had been, you know, telling other people how they need to open and close and open and close, and I was kind of holding my my own, uh, not necessarily doing that. Uh, and actually, part of my job in, in coordinating about 50 or 100 different volunteers <coughs> down there, um, and also being the chaplain for the group, was to keep an eye out on other people who were volunteering. We weren't so associated with either Salvation Army or Red Cross. We were kind of um, the, the Robin Hoods of the center. We had one whole side of the pit, which nobody else was covering, and we were doing it. And, and it was just a, a kind of a scavenged bunch of merry men and women who were down there doing it. And uh, for the first week until I got everybody passes, nobody had passes, so that if they left, they wouldn't get back in. So people wouldn't leave, and people wouldn't sleep, and people were just working around the clock. Um, and uh, I was supposed to keep an eye out to make sure that people weren't cracking up, uh, and some did. Um, either just in terms of their own emotional breaks or in terms of making bad decisions. Um, and I had turned to a couple of my lieutenants a couple times and told them about a, a Star Trek episode where um, some alien being is coming in and taking over the, the minds of the, of the crew and making them do things. And Kirk turns to Spock and says, you know, if you see me do things badly, you know, kill me before I bring down the Enterprise. So I turned to my two lieutenants and says, you know, put me to bed before I bring down the Enterprise. Um, <laughs> And a number of times when we got in places, I would turn to them and say, have I, you know, has it gotten me yet? Um, and it was a real important part of the mutual support was, was uh, sticking, sticking together. Um, just before, um, before we go, maybe do a short closing sitting. On the, on the back table, right by the door, there are some flyers about the prison project, um, the Center Force Prison Project. This has some information about um, the effectiveness of mindfulness meditation with prisoners. Um, and some studies that have been done. And this has information about our particular prison project um, here in California. As I said, I'm hoping to come back in January and February and teach for four or five weeks in these four different prisons. Um, to be able to do that, we need to raise $15,000. Um, so there's also some donation things at the bottom, um, which if people are interested in taking or if you have other places, you could put a stack of them. I can give you a stack. Um, we haven't been doing much hardcore fundraising, mostly because... It's all on my shoulders to raise the money, and mostly because it seems like one of those things that just takes care of itself, and I'm not feeling like I need to push it, um, but that it will manifest as need be. Um, there's an envelope if you want to mail it back, or you can uh, – there's also pledge cards. And uh, if you just want to write a pledge and stick it in the Donna basket, um, that's fine too. So thank you in advance. Um, and I wanted to read you one uh, thing from one of the girls in the prison before we go. Her name is Rochelle, and she's 16, but she wrote this a year ago, so I guess she was 15 at the time. It's called The Way of Life. Seasons come and go, but nothing really changes. The sun rises and sets, hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and north, here and there, twisting back and forth, getting nowhere. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are never content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. What can you point to that is new? How do you know it didn't already exist long ago? We don't remember what happened in those former times, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. I said to myself, let me look for the good things in life, but I found this to be meaningless. So I decided to compare wisdom and folly, and anyone else would come to the same conclusion that I did. Wisdom is more valuable than foolishness, just as light is brighter than darkness. For the wise person sees, while the fool is blind. But in my eyes I see that the wise and foolish people share the same fate. Both of them will die. Just as the fool will die, so will I. 
So sometimes I say, what good is it being wise? Let's sit together just for a couple of moments.